Well, I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Lamentations chapter 2. If you're using the uh, blue ESV Bible in the seatbacks out there, you can find that on uh, page 686. The title of our sermon, um, contrary to what I had put in the bulletin, I changed it to uh, The Anger of God. And the key words for our worshipers in training are splendor, cut down, and ruins. In Lamentations 2, we'll be looking at the first 10 verses this morning. As parents, we often have to administer discipline to our children when they are in rebellion. This is not an enjoyable experience for us, and it certainly is not an enjoyable experience for them. No discipline is pleasant at the time when it is administered, it's rather painful. Now, we do this, right, in the hopes of the peaceful fruit of righteousness that it will produce in those who are trained by it. But it is painful. There are also times as parents when we have to tell our children no. We have to deny them something that they want. And it basically upends their entire world. Our children may get mad at us for numerous reasons in any given day. Sometimes they're right in doing so because we've sinned against them. But often they're mad at us because they just don't like the experiences that they... They don't like experiencing the consequences of their sins. Or they don't like or they don't understand what we're doing as their parents. Now, when a child gets angry, oftentimes the, the desire is to flee, right? They pack a bag, I'm running away. Or they just head into their room and they don't want to talk. They want to storm off and sulk. Now, while as parents, we, we always expect a measure of respect from our children, Wouldn't you rather have your child come and tell you honestly how he or she feels, what he or she is thinking in this moment, even if it's uncomfortable to hear? When my kids are angry with me, or if they're angry at the world, or at themselves, or anything, I'd rather have them draw near to me as their father and attempt to express what is going on in their hearts rather than to have them withdraw because they believe they can't be honest with me. Well, enter Lamentations 2. When we began this series, I mentioned that Lamentations as a whole provides us with a deeper vocabulary uh, that that enriches our ability to speak about suffering, to speak about sin, and to speak about our experience of sin and suffering in this fallen world. And this is certainly true of this second poem here in the book of Lamentations. Western Christianity in general and the prayers of Western Christians in particular have become, I don't think it's a stretch to say, very very neat, very tidy, very sanitized, very 
milk toast. Lamentations confronts a prim and proper Christianity with the horrors of a sinful world and a suffering world. Right? If you, if you polled the average churchgoer in America, how many of them have ever prayed a prayer that resembles anything like what we find in Lamentations? Forget the average churchgoer. What about us? How many of us can say that Lamentations, in its agony, in its boldness, in its, its rawness, is reflective of any part of our prayer lives? I think a lot of us would look at a text like Lamentations 2 or, uh, or a lot of the lament psalms, right? 77, 79, or 88 in particular. 88, right? Ends, darkness is my only companion. Right? There is a, a depth to what the Scriptures speak that I think many of us look at and ask, can I really pray something like this? Can I really be this honest with God? One of my desires for us as we work through Lamentations, and this is particularly true of our text today, one of my desires is that we would learn to embrace the vocabulary of these laments as we seek to give voice to our pain and to voice our pain to our Heavenly Father who loves us better than we can love our children. So let's read the first ten verses together of Lamentations 2, outline them, and then dive in. How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered His footstool in the day of His anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In His wrath He has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them His right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes, in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste His booth like a garden. Laid in ruins His meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in His fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned His altar, disowned His sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain His hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. 
He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Now we're going to break our our usual pattern this morning. There are just two parts to this sermon. So that's going to totally throw you off. Sorry. In, uh, In the first five verses, we're going to see first that the poet describes in slightly general, though nonetheless terrifying terms, the anger of God against His people. And then secondly, in verses 6-10, through 10, we're going to see the poet zoom in on three particular effects that this uh, expression of anger has on his people, has on Lady Zion. So we're going to see God's anger, and then we're going to see the effects of God's anger. So in the first five verses, then, in the first place, we see the anger of God. And the first thing to notice in Lamentations 2, the ov- like the overwhelming uh, thing that it jumps out at you when you're reading this is that God Himself is the subject of the first eight verses of this poem. And His anger is in peculiar focus here. Lamentations 1, the first poem, Uh, speaks in terms largely revolving around the anguish of the city Jerusalem, personified as a a suffering, sobbing woman, a widow. There's the the focus is is much more on her. Lamentations two opens with an unrelenting look at God Himself and His display of anger against this woman. We're told in these first five verses that Yahweh, in the day of His anger, has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down. He has not remembered. He has swallowed up without mercy. He has broken down. He has brought down to the ground. He has cut down. He has withdrawn. He has burned like a fire. He has bent his bow. He has killed. He has poured out his fury. He has become like an enemy. He has laid in ruins, multiplied mourning and lamentation. And then into verses 6 or 8, we read, He has laid waste. He has made Zion forget. He has spurned king and priest. He has scorned, disowned, and delivered into the hand of the enemy. He is determined to lay in ruins. He has stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. It is a flood of powerful and perplexing images that confront our minds and our hearts in a way, perhaps, that is even more perplexing than what we saw in the first poem. There is a greater rawness in light of the suffering expressed here. Lamentations 1, without being unfeeling, 
or unmoved for sure, holds together the suffering and the sins of the woman city, Jerusalem. Right? The message is clear in Lamentations 1. The message, spoken through tears, is this. God was judging Jerusalem for centuries of constant rebellion against Him as her covenant Lord. So the message of Lamentations 1 is that while suffering is unbearable, it's not without explanation. Lamentations 2, however, refrains from offering much, if any, explanation for this suffering, for this expression of anger, especially in these opening verses. There's one reference to iniquity in verse 14. But really, Lamentations 2 does not speak of the sin of Jerusalem. And so, there seems to be forming here something of a protest. If we're honest, it is difficult to read the onslaught of aggressive acts attributed to God in these first eight verses with no mention of Israel's sin and not detect at least a hint of protest, a hint of confusion. Maybe even a hint of of anger. So we should ask ourselves, is is the poet angry with God? Is he accusing God in these verses? Is God a war criminal in the eyes of the poet? Some commentators think so. Kathleen O'Connor writes, While the narrator depicts the assault on the land and the people, he is simultaneously charging God with infidelity, a lack of integrity, and loss of self-control. God is mad, out of control, swirling about in unbridled destruction. Zion's guilt fades from the poetic concern, and the narrator's charges are against God alone. Is that what's going on here in Lamentations 2? Has the poet forgotten the guilt of the idolatrous city and turned furiously against the divine attacker? Well, hardly. It is true that the guilt of the people is no longer front and center in the poet's mind. But it isn't gone completely. Lamentations 2 comes after Lamentations 1 for a reason. Lamentations 2 doesn't focus on the sins of Jerusalem. But it is offered in the context of Lamentations 1, which does make plain that her suffering is a result of her sins. And as well, God's expression of anger here, as we saw last week, occurs after centuries of patience, centuries of waiting, centuries of pleading with Jerusalem to turn from her sins. God does not erupt in anger out of nowhere. God suffered long with His people before bringing this destruction upon them. Forget the centuries of warnings that God had made to past generations, right? Ever since He spoke through Moses to Israel in Deuteronomy 28. What about the 40 years that Jeremiah warned the current generation in vivid detail of the coming destruction? Verse 
God was patient. And so this poem is is not forgotten the sin of, of Israel. But we do have to grapple with a sense of protest. Because it isn't Lamentations 1. It is a different poem. And so while it is certainly very connected and related to Lamentations 1, it is on its own. And so we have to consider what it says in its own right as well. The gist of the, the opening verses here can be summed up in the phrase, no mercy. God has acted without mercy. The time of warning has passed. The time of action and judgment had arrived. And so God enveloped Jerusalem in a cloud of anger. He has cut off His formal relationship with Israel, casting her splendor down from heaven to earth, forgetting them. Her fall was great. He'd broken strongholds. He dishonored the kingdom and its rulers. He withdrew His right hand from them. The time when they needed it the most. And He replaced it with the blazing fire of anger and indignation. God had become like an enemy. Flamentations 1 is the objective view of the suffering of the people, right? Holding sin and suffering together. Lamentations 2 is a more subjective view. And it, it certainly it comes right up to the line, perhaps, of, of protesting the seeming disproportionality of this suffering. Without crossing the line into sinful accusation, the poet does speak boldly about God here. As we said in the introduction, this is good and instructive for us, for our prayer lives. One commentator puts it this way. He says, God has broad enough shoulders to cry on and a big enough chest to beat against. And that's exactly what we see here in Lamentations 2. A hurting child crying out to his father. This is unbearable and it almost seems unfair. And while we ought never to accuse God of wrongdoing, God cannot sin. He can't even do the slightest wrong. And so we are never justified in our anger with Him. But, but if we are angry, if we are confused, if we are hurting, is it not better to go to God with those things than to run away from Him? Even if we speak things that frighten us. They don't frighten God. So in these opening verses, these first five in particular, we see the anger of God under this microscope. And it is it's heavy and it's hard to look at. But in our own lives, when we feel like God is against us, one, we can remember that He's not, but when it feels like He is, we can go to Him. And we'll come back to this at the end or move on to our second point. Verses 6-10 through as we consider the anger of God with the zoom on. Right? We're 30,000 foot view sort of in the first five verses. Now in verses 6-10 through uh, 10, 
we're going to zoom in and see three particular effects that God's anger had on Jerusalem. Now, God is still the subject uh, in the first few verses here in, in this section, verses 6 through 10. Um, it's not until verse 9 that the subject of the sentences change. Uh, in verse 9, it's the gates of the city have sunk into the ground. But the poet does make a shift in verse 6. From focusing on the Lord as the angry aggressor uh, against Jerusalem in sort of general hunting, warlike terminology, he makes a shift here to focus and make some observations about the, the particular effects that this anger had on the city. So in verses 6 and 7, these acts of anger described in the opening five verses bring about the end of formal worship as the temple is torn down. Then in verse 8 and part of verse 9, uh, these acts of anger brought about the end of Jerusalem's safety as their walls are torn down. And then in verse 9 and in verse 10, they bring about the end of communication with God as her prophets are no more. So I want to look at each of these in the second um, heading, uh, each of these three points in turn. So first, no worship. Verses 6 and 7, the poet laments the destruction of the sanctuary, of the temple. The Lord has laid waste his booth. He's laid waste. He's laid in ruins his meeting place. He has caused Israel to forget their liturgical practices. He scorned his altar and disowned his sanctuary. It might be easy to think that the great tragedy of what happened in 586 B.C. when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, was the destruction of a beautiful building. The temple indeed was beautiful. But we see here that the greater sorrow is the loss of what the building facilitated. Communion with God. God laid in ruins the place where He would meet with His people. You see that? The second line in verse 6 Right? Laid in ruins his meeting place. But he also scorned his altar where atonement would be made for the sins of these people. The importance of the temple for life in Israel can hardly be overstated. It's, no, it's nothing like the way that we view church buildings today. I want to come back to that uh, at the end. But for now, I want to make the point this way. The building that we're in now, this building here, or, just, or this campus altogether, it does not hold the same function for us that the temple did for Israel. Right? Reading through Genesis and Exodus, you realize a number of things, two of which are this. Uh, God is infinitely holy, and people are unquestionably sinful, and yet, God has undeniably purpose to live among people. Right? So two things we're reading through there. God's holy, we're sinful, but God is going to live among people. Therefore, we need the sacrifices of the book of Leviticus and the sacrifice of Christ, after which they are patterned. Right? We need those for that to happen. For God to dwell among people. Sinful people, 
there has to be a sacrifice and atonement for sin. This was the primary function of the temple, particularly the altar. It was where God manifested His, His communing presence with Israel, where sacrifices were made to grant temp- temporary atonement and forgiveness for the sins of the people. The destruction of the temple meant that this was no longer happening. God was not going to dwell among His people. He was not going to commune with His people. And so it's a great lamentation here. It's not a beautiful building that was destroyed. It was access to God. The poet makes clear the, the further horrors of the destruction and desecration of the temple in verse 7, at the end of verse 7. Right? He delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. We saw this reality described in pretty horrific language back in Lamentations 1, 4 through 11. And uh, when we looked at that, we referenced Psalm 74 and 79 as further expressions of that anguish of the destruction of the temple. Um, And I'm going to read a part of Psalm 74 here, verses 1 through 4 and then 10 and 11. He said, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in your sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own signs. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. The psalm closes, Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. And so in God's anger, the temple was desecrated by foreign nations and then completely destroyed. Ending Judah's enjoyment of communion with God through temple worship. We see in verses 8, in the first part of verse 9 then, um, a second effect of God's anger. Second result. The walls, the ramparts, the gates, the bars of the city itself were destroyed. Not just temple life, but all of life was destroyed. And, and here there's an emphasis that the security that Judah had previously enjoyed under God's protection now totally evades their grasp. And here it's, it's worth noting again in verse 8. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. God determined to do this. He planned to do this. But yet again, we are called to remember that this was a conditional plan that was announced long beforehand and could have been avoided. Jeremiah made this 
clear back in his prophecy in chapter 18, Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8. He says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Then in verse 11 he says, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you, Jerusalem, against you, Judah, and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But sadly, the stubborn heart of the people speaks out in verse 12 of Jeremiah 18. They say, that is in vain. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. And so God broke into pieces their strongholds, their places of safety and security in his anger. And then we see finally in verse 9 and 10, God's anger led to a stunned silence that haunted the broken city. The civic leaders have been carried off. The law is no more. The prophets see no vision from the Lord. The elders sit on the ground in silence with young women left to bow their heads to the ground in painful, desperate resignation. And here perhaps is another echo of Jeremiah 18. In verse 18 we read that Jerusalem plotted against Jeremiah, said that their law, their wise counsel, and their prophetic words were indestructible. They would never end. But they did. The city that had forsaken God, as one commentator puts it, is now God-forsaken. The God who dwells with man has left. The God who speaks with man has fallen silent. But of course, this is not the end of the story. Which brings us to a few points of application that I want to make in closing. First, remember, God's shoulders are broad enough to cry upon and His chest is big enough to beat against. Lamentations 2, and especially these opening verses about the anger of God, helps give proper voice to the anger of man. Now, we, we must not think that we can be justifiably angry with God. The Bible is, cle- is clear on that point. God is never wrong, can never sin, and so we are never justified in our anger against Him. But if you are, or if you are hurt, if you're confused, if you don't know what to do with your feelings, because you live in a fallen world and it hurts, don't stuff them down deep. Don't hide from them. Don't pretend that they don't exist. Don't pretend like you're not angry. Run to Jesus. Run to the Lord and trust Him to help you sort them out. Right, we're not, we're not talking about unbridled anger against God that accuses Him of wrongdoing. But we are talking about a real honesty with God about your painful experiences in this fallen world. Trusting that you are not going to hurt His feelings. Well, we also must remember, secondly... 
that the prophets, the priests, the kings, all the covenantal and physical structures of life in Israel, from the temple to the walls to the, the leaders, all of, all of them were patterned after the forthcoming, the then forthcoming life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ministry of the Lord. Jesus is the full and final word of God to man. So the prophets see no vision from the Lord here, but it's not the end of the story. Jesus comes and speaks again. And now we have His Word with us. He is the the final and actual atoning sacrifice that enables God and man to dwell peaceably together. We see both of these truths in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 1, 1 1-3, right? Jesus is the final Word of God. God spoke to us previously through the the prophets in various ways, various times. In these latter days, He's spoken to us by His Son. In Hebrews 9, 11-14, the temple was a shadow of the things to come. Namely, Jesus. So, I want to look at each of those briefly Jesus is God's Word. If you find yourself longing to hear from God, if you feel like God is, is, is not communicating to you, do you know that He has spoken fully and finally for your encouragement in the Lord Jesus and that has been written down in this book? Don't look any further than the Bible in your hands. Open it up. Read it. Imbibe its message. Consume it and be consumed by it. God is not silent. He has spoken and graciously provided. He didn't just provide Redeemer Baptist Church with one copy of the Bible. Right? The only way that you could know what is in the Bible is by hearing it read at church. He provided each and every one of us with a copy of it. Multiple copies of it. Jesus is God's Word too. Jesus is God's temple. Seventy years after the exile, under the rule of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Jews went back to Jerusalem. Eventually they rebuilt the temple. But its glory was greatly diminished. And it was not like that of the first. And then in 70 AD, that temple finally came down under the Roman Empire as Israel fully and finally rejected God's Messiah. And so the physical structure of the temple has been done away with. And again, if you read Hebrews 9 especially, and you see that that's a good thing because now we have Jesus. Jesus as the new temple and His people as part of that temple since we are with Him, right? In that, God now dwells with man in Jesus. God and man are reconciled. We don't need a physical temple anymore. Jesus is the temple. Now I want to talk about this building for a minute in application of this truth. I think many see church buildings today as completely inconsequential. Right? Temple's done away with. Jesus is the temple. We don't need to care about buildings. While we must affirm that the church and not the building is the church, right? The building isn't a temple. 
We are the temple. We are the church. But this building is the place where we have agreed to meet regularly to worship God together. Is that a small thing? Is the building in which heaven and earth meet in a purposeful and conscious way through the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments, is that completely inconsequential? Does the campus that serves as the headquarters for our ministry to our community mean nothing? Of course not. So we're not dependent on a building in the same way that Israel was we should still see the long-term value of the buildings that we do have. So here's the question. Does it matter to you if these buildings are still standing in 200 years, if Jesus tarries, and that biblical worship of the triune God is still being enjoyed on this campus? 200 years from now, you're long dead. I hope that it does. At the end of the day, we are, we are Jesus' people. We are bound by the belief that the anger of God that burns against sinners has been absorbed by Jesus for His people on the cross. Therefore, the anger of God, in the anger of God, the anger of man fades away. And so ask yourself, are you a Jesus person? Or am I in Jesus Christ? Have I placed my faith in Him and received a heavenly pardon for my sins? Have I been reconciled to God through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Right? Because Jesus as the temple is the meeting place of God and man where atonement has been made. God's anger is an unrelenting fire that will wreak havoc on all upon whom it falls. But that need not be anyone in this room. It need not be that person in your life that you're thinking of that doesn't know Christ. Jesus, in loving partnership with the Father, has made perfect provision for all who look to Him for salvation from the coming wrath. Right, Because the, the picture here in Lamentations 2, lamenting the fall of Jerusalem and the temple, while that really happened, it's, it's just a foreshadowing of the wrath of God conveyed against sinners for all eternity. And so, if you don't know Christ, would you forsake your sins and lay hold of Jesus? And if you do know Jesus... For us uh, us who are already Christians, we're invited once more to forsake our sins. To lay hold of Jesus 